In this episode, I am joined by Sapna Sharma. Together, we discuss the place of metabolomics in multi-omic studies and how to make the most of the omic data we already have. We'll also learn how to go beyond associations and towards causal relationships and what that means for the future of medicine. The Metabolomist is the podcast where we listen to the stories whispered by metabolomic data. I am Alice Lemonciel, and this season we will examine the application of metabolomics in the clinics and the place of data interpretation in this field. Hello and welcome to The Metabolomist. Uh, today I'm joined by Sapna Sharma, who is a biostatistician and bioinformatician and group leader at the Technical University of Munich in Germany. Hello and welcome. Hi, Alice. For people who don't know you and your work, can you begin by explaining what your group works on and, and what your specialty is? Sure, sure. Currently, we are focusing on metabolic syndromes. So what it is, is that it's a cluster of five disease conditions, such as hypertension, lower, low HDL cholesterol, high triglyceride, obesity, and diabetes. Mm-hmm. And my focus is in last two part, obesity and diabetes. And uh, with the with the paper we will discuss today. <laughs> yeah. So I started with the adult population. However, in past two, three years, I've been growing, my group was growing, and now I have incorporated collaborations regarding this topic from newborn and adolescent as well. Mm-hmm. And the motivation is that these are the root cause for other complex diseases. So it's mm-hmm. better to get hands-on as early as possible. Yeah, and I guess you see signs already of the disease in very early individuals. Exactly, yeah. Do you already find trends of things that, that evolve over time and that people, that like signs that already build on from adolescence into adulthood and before oh. they develop more complex diseases? And not from my group at least, mm-hmm. but what we have is very nice transition from Within adolescent, let's say uh, seven years old, um, and then how they develop these diseases or after seven years. So this data we have, and there we can see what goes wrong. Or, and I know you work with multiple omics, but for this work, you focus primarily on metabolomics, or do you always combine it with other things? Or what's your favorite strategy? My background is more on a data science, and I do integrate other data. If you focus on metabolomics, for instance, then you will associate those metabolites with your clinical variable, whatever out like, like disease of interest you have. That is simple, right? And then it gets boring if you keep on doing it for several projects. So yes, then just to bring more spice, I try to integrate as much uh, omics uh, possible. So I take then genomics into account and uh, combine these two layers of information. Yeah. We're going to have really nice examples of this when we when we discuss the papers. We already talked a bit about your background. Is there anything in addition you want to say? So um, like early from my school time, I was always interested in maths. I was good in maths. And even in my class, my teachers remembers me as like a, a person who is of like teaching maths to the same age group. So though I was so that was like an inborn interest. And my mom gave for both for both math and teaching, interestingly. Exactly. I wanted to do engineering. And uh, you know, this is cool, do the cool engineering stuff and all that. And she said, maths will 
will take you a long way, you know. And this is something which is really, um, will never leave you. And that's how all it started, actually. But one thing was very sure after graduation in maths that I didn't want it to do pure maths. I didn't want it to be in a hypothetical world because that engineering thing was always in my head. So mm -hmm. I, I took a path in applied maths where I wanted to apply simple mathematical equation to solve real world problem, right? And then there was so much more. There was then computations involved. You learn uh, how to automize things. And then slowly bit slowly, the career went on from simple equation to the complex. <laughs> it's very interesting. And now you focus a lot of your work on metabolomics and work with lots of different omics and data types. So wh why this focus on metabolomics specifically? Small molecules. Uh -huh. Not lipids. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're going to hear a lot about lipids from you, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> we should hear that story straight from the beginning. Yeah. But small molecules got you interested first. Not first. So, no? So, okay. No, no. <laughs> During my PhD, I worked a lot with a microarray data, okay? Mm -hmm. And that was all from E. coli bacteria, for instance. Mm -hmm. And then at, during that time, NGS data was coming up. People were talking about this high throughput data. So I was mm -hmm. like, okay, NGS sounds cool. So I went into trunk doing transcriptomics, proteomics, mm -hmm. and never paid attention to, to these uh, level of information. But in 2016, when I joined Helmholtz uh, doing uh, health science, and I was deputy group leader in the Institute of Epidemiology, there I got access to multiomics. Like, you know, this is something which is so fascinating. And I think I was extremely lucky to have access to different layers of information from a population, you know? Yeah. And that's where I found metabolomics. And that in, my, that in that job, my first challenge was that, okay, you are the person responsible for cleaning, preparing, and handling metabolomics data. So it was targeted, non-targeted. Mm -hmm. And then since 2016, I'm with it and it has been with me. So mm -hmm. It's very interesting. It's, it's always interesting to see how people get their focus on something. And, and also, you're not the first one to tell me this. Like There's this idea of being in the right place at the right time or with the right people also that like in an environment where you get curious about something with people who are curious with you and then that, that helps you to go further. That's also something... I think in a lot of people, especially who love their work, and you can hear it in the way you describe it, I can see that you really love what you do, that this is sometimes how the some of the details of what we choose happen, also be based on who we work with and, and how. Yeah. Thank you for this. It's a cool story. Yeah. You mentioned you started cleaning um, the metabolomic data, and maybe this will be the answer to my to my next question, but was there something you found particularly difficult when you started working with metabolomics, especially in comparison with other data types that you were used to? Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah. So so other data have uh, some standards, right? I mean, and metabolomics here, the complexity was not clear to me earlier, right? I have been working with different data. And recently I was watching uh, David Wizard's lecture notes and mm -hmm. he put it so well that genomic is based on four bases, A, G, C, yeah. okay, four. Mm -hmm. If you go to proteomics, then 20 amino acids. And when you come to metabolomics, hallelujah, it's like, damn, <laughs> you are in this big bang. Yeah. <laughs> I see it like a big bang happening in that little chamber of LCMS and, uh -huh. and you are exposed to so many small molecules. 
but then identifying them you know how much is known out of like the small fraction yeah uh, yeah so mm-hmm. like the i'm just using a words from experts like only 10% of the information is known and rest all is unknown uh, gary patty he gave us such a beautiful example of like look metabolome as a dark room where mm-hmm. targeted and a targeted metabolomics is an approach where you go inside that dark room with the torch you know <laughs> where you put the torch you see only that space and rest yeah. is still there but you mm-hmm. don't know so uh, it's like amazing and it's complex and yet this is this is developing you know yeah exactly this is what i was going to get to because also metabolomics is in a way relatively young from the technological aspect so we we both been working in this field for a while so i guess you've also seen this evolution also in the standardization i mean it's not what it was 10 or 15 years ago uh, there is some progress but we need more progress right absolutely especially a targeted is really in a much better stage and okay. especially some of the kids which provides you a uh, real standards right i mean and list for instance is a great example mm-hmm. these are really good for doing clinical trials where you want a good reproducibility right mm-hmm. so reproducibility is also a challenge in metabolomics i know you work a lot from data that has already been generated from samples so it would be a different approach but let's say if you were working from the research question from the top down and you could choose your cohort and you could choose your samples and how you would measure them would you have like a, a special approach that you think is best for a specific type of application or is it more like you find the best workflow for each set of measurements that you you have at your disposal a very good question um what i have learned uh growing so far from uh, phd's and after phd all of these is that everything boils down to money and the funding that you have right that's very good i don't really sorry to say I mean, if I have a budget of hundred thousand, mm-hmm. how can I dream? I, and and I know I have three thousand samples. How can I dream of uh, untargeted? Mm-hmm. Although untargeted give me uh, promising novel markers, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a very tough battle to choose. I have reached the stage where I can really say openly that yes, it's a matter of money, and uh, of course. And do you see then the statistics and bioinformatics that you apply afterwards also? helping to focus uh or to get more chances to find markers or biomarkers if you don't have this level of novelty in the discovery of the exactly. molecule themselves exactly really where you can compensate for this then exactly so this is what i'm happy that i have been in this space because yeah i can see gaps and once you see gaps and i personally think there is enough data it is yeah. enough data but there is not enough bioinformatics tools to make sense out of it and that's where i have started taking these baby steps where you know you have a metabolomics from one study you have metabolomics from other studies you know what we can learn what mm-hmm. we can learn from interbrevas G- for instance is people do it measure it uh, and and keep it available for people to use but how many of us are using it mm-hmm. and if you go into that take that just one it's just like taking diff- putting on different glass to see different information uh, yeah so you have like special glasses for for gwas and omics yeah yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and you need the bioinformatician or the biostatistician that can handle this type of data like i worked a lot with transcriptomics and all sorts of omics but gwas i don't have the computational capacity to do it myself if i want to work with that so that's also a level where 
you need to work with other people with different expertises and then and then you can make the best of it. The second paper we'll discuss is a beautiful example of that because I stopped counting the number of authors at 50, but it's like one of those papers where you have a huge amount of people and it starts, I guess, from the, the collection of the samples to the measurements to the analysis. So it takes a village to make a paper like this, but then you have really cool results out of it. Before we dive into the papers, let's talk about the available data. Because it's a thought-provoking idea to say there's enough data out there. So let's let's focus on the type 2 diabetes because there's definitely a lot of data about type 2 diabetes. If we talk about more obscure diseases, maybe not, but for diseases that are really common like this one and where people have really been looking into it for a long time and hoping to find something really useful to detect it, to prevent it, to treat it. What makes you say there's enough data? And where do we find this data also? From my experience, all these uh, big cohorts are meant to share information. So when you say data, the data does not mean that you need exactly, because there is a lot of things happening, right? There's a data protection happening. There is a there is a GDPR uh, we need to be assured of. And most of my data are patient data. So you work in a very conservative, uh, secure environment like cloud or servers where you process the data. So what I mean by data is information. And I'm telling you, whoever is measuring the data is not measuring for the sake of keeping it. But the information can be transformed in different language, in different forms. For instance, I give you an example of Cora. Okay. Yeah. So, and, and most of these bigger studies not only measures the data, but has a portal where you can give your research proposal and say that, hey, look, I have done the study and I would, would like to take it and add this data. So these consortiums, uh, of course, these guys, the consortium is not their hardcore job. They are all scientists. They have their own labs. Mm -hmm. So what they do is that they form a board, board of members, and they meet like once in a six month or if they are, it's still developing then every month, once in a month. And they do consider taking this proposal and and give you then access to data. So, mm -hmm. so raw data and getting access to raw data is controversial, I understand. But let's say if I want to know the metabolites those were associated with BMI, okay, then for me, the metabolites and their effect and their their significance, this information is enough for me. I don't need raw data. I can rely on their expertise. I can so so they have transformed data into information. And that information is what I'm talking about is possible. And this is where it's our responsibility also that we should not demand for more, but rather seek for information. Mm -hmm. So you work more from the, the summary statistics of different Absolutely. parameters you're interested in. And that, that's yes. enough to get you going with yeah. the kind of deep analysis that, that we're going to discuss. Absolutely. Like, yes. Yeah. Very interesting. From your point of view as a biostatistician, is there something you would recommend maybe to people who collect or prepare this data for you that would be useful that you would like to see? Definitely there can be more than, you know, <laughs> absolutely. You look at the GWAS, GWAS is the best example, mm -hmm. right? I mean, if you t talk about type 2 diabetes, there is a type 2 diabetes GWAS portal. If you mm -hmm. talk about cardiovascular, there is a cardiovascular data. So like that, metabolites need to grow and make mm -hmm. their own portals where mm -hmm. you submit and I'm sure there are there must be but you know it's still not enough and it's still in the PMID in a supplementary table song but 
But uh, recently, I, I came across one paper where, like you do GVAS and then you do meta-analysis, they have started doing it for meta metabolomics as well. But imagine that it was the first time in Valencia, I guess I heard, that somebody is comparing metabolites from two different studies and doing meta-analysis over the known information. There are a few papers like this, but it's difficult. Yeah. And in one of our episodes this year with Rachel Kelly, we talked about comets also where they gather metabolomic studies from different sources and then do that work of harmonizing it and then making it available in a similar way to Cora. Then so you put a proposal and then uh, you get access to the data that has already been kind of combined for you. And then you can start your work. This really helps people to get more more access to more data absolutely, absolutely. And, and here this is the thing this is where you can uh, fill the gap in jiva's a lot of such things that already happened right so in metabolomics it's yet to be done and yeah. you know, to bring it in that level so there is lot to do here and yeah it's is interesting and um, mm -hmm. that's a good point it's a very interesting point thank you should we get to the first paper we wanted to discuss today Absolutely. Are you ready? Yes. So <laughs> that paper was published in 2023. The um, paper is titled Metabolic Signatures Elucidate the Effect of Body Mass Index on Type 2 Diabetes, which we would think we know that BMI has a, a link to type 2 diabetes. But what were you trying to, to prove here that was not shown before? These two diseases does not need introduction, right? I mean, mm. one in 10 exactly. is obese and one in four is the diabetes that we know. The thing is, how... You can have one omics and multiple clinical variable or clinical information. So again, like in this case, CORA metabolomics data targeted only 150 metabolites we considered was available. For that, we had diabetic and obesity information. But it was always looked at from one angle, either obesity-wise or diabetic-wise. Then I thought there is a crosstalk happening and where it is happening and how we can link it. So that's where I used Mendelian randomization and brought the genetic drivers because genetic drivers for these two uh, so-called disease condition, BMI is a disease condition and uh, diabetes is a disease, we do have a lot of GVAS available, right? And we do have metabolite associated with those GVAS also for mm -hmm. both of them. Bang on. Like then I searched for it and I nowhere found this link that mm -hmm. can there be one metabolite or set of metabolites that could link these two things? Mm -hmm. So causal inference is what I yeah. took. Then this yeah. takes us to to your best quote so far from me that I've heard you say a couple of times that associations are boring. So with this paper, you're going to explain to us how we can go beyond associations and not just exactly. stop there. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah. It's just that, you know, being a scientist, you are passionate. And again, also you get bored, you know. Of course, one and it's, I have the same feeling. So I'm always uh, trying to push people to go beyond the simple. I mean, it's a lot of work at complex work, but the simple results of the statistics and to try and understand what's going on. It's the same idea. Sure, I can tell you these metabolites are increased, these metabolites are decreased, but it has no impact on what we do about this disease now. We just know that, that it's like this and it might not even be like this in the next studies. Let's go into the detail of some figures and then we can talk about the overall strategy that you used because I have, I have one question just about the, the second figure of the paper. It's a set of volcano plots and there are basically two models you were comparing, a basic model with only a few um, covariates and then a full model with like the whole shebang. Uh, and then you look at which metabolites associate with BMI and which ones with type 2 diabetes. 
And just for people who, because this is like the, the very typical way to start looking at things. So could you explain a little bit where you compare different models? You, you use also different types of models for type 2 diabetes that is a kind of yes, no categorical states, like you have it or you don't have it. And then BMI, that is a continuous variable. Can you discuss a bit why show the two different models for both? And what, what does that tell you for the paper? How does that help your story? Right. First of all, obesity and diabetes, both have, both of these diseases have a lifestyle impact on. So it's heavily lifestyle driven. Basically, it's known that if you do any association, your age related and BMI related variables are always confounded. So But we know that and we are lucky that in Cora we do have like physical activity, even your social status. It is known that, you know, if you are more literate, how you could keep your life active and, you know, it has a positive effect on your health. Health in general. Mm -hmm. We had this and once you have these variables, yeah, you do it just for it to, to get that, get a clearer picture. Like you want type 2 diabetes associated metabolites only and not that it confounds with something else. Mm -hmm. So that's the main, main, main thing. So, so statistically, if it is a continuous variable or not, you pick your model, you go for logistic yeah. or regression. But in the end of the day, you are looking into the associations. And what is the key message here is that you can see, like if you take a basic model, you will have out of 150, 50 metabolites associated okay, with BMI, which is not true. If you look into the full model, it reduces to 20. Right. Mm -hmm. So now these 20 are more close to the disease, so to say. Mm -hmm. So you are doing a little bit, you know, cleaning and you're yeah. focusing on this is specific markers mm -hmm. and uh, not the side actors. <laughs> yeah. And so the figure is a nice message also to tell people don't just correct for the usual suspect. But if you have the information, try and dig out more Absolutely. more of the weeds, basically, Absolutely. so that you get yes. closer to the beautiful flower you're looking for. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, well said. <laughs> and what's really interesting is, of course, and not surprisingly, but the metabolites that you end up finding are also usual suspects of diabetes and, and exactly. BMI or obesity. So it's uh, alpha amino adipic acid has been discussed in that context many times, mm -hmm. certain amino acids, and of course, certain lipids as well. Mm -hmm. So I guess when you start your study and this is your first result, I guess this is a good start, huh? Like exactly. You're this you puts you, yeah. Yes, this puts you in a right track. Yeah. I always take yardsticks. I want to see a known knowns yeah. with unknowns, which I would like to make it know. Mm -hmm. so yes, this is important, right? That you always double check, like before diving too deep into an analysis to make sure that you're still in sync with what is usually known about that disease. Yeah. So otherwise, you can easily go off track and end up in a little corner somewhere by accident. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you can say that you found a novel marker, but then it's hard to prove and sell. Maybe now is a good time to discuss how you handle lipids uh, in, your, in your work, because here in this analysis, so every metabolite, whether it's a small molecule or a lipid, is considered as a single feature. Um, but of course, for lipids, it can be useful to work with them at the class level, like to group all the phospholipids together or different subclasses of phospholipids together. From your perspective, what would be a couple of advice that you would give to people who start with this? Yeah. So what I have now started selling lipid is not lipids, but lipid species. Yeah. So when you talk about species, then you have 
many features of that. Mm-hmm. So this is this is the terminology that I grabbed from transcriptomics. You know, yeah. so you have a like a gene species. So mm-hmm. it falls under does the same function. They are classified as the same function, but they are different. They are different in metabolites because of two carbons, more two carbons, less, mm-hmm. and forms it. So what I have started doing is that I run each model for one metabolite separately. I don't merge them, but you can do that. You can go for a sum of them, like you can, or to the ratios, for instance, it has mm-hmm. been proven that the ratios are more informative in this case. And that um, can help, yeah. That mm-hmm. can help. So it's like talking about not just lipids, but let's say in a species form is what I have found mm-hmm. useful. And Do you try both usually now when you have uh, data sets with lipids? Do you try each species individually and in parallel the grouping them together? Yeah, yeah, I yeah. do both. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Because this is often something that happens is like we try a lot of things and then we keep what gives something interesting. Exactly, right? Exactly. Yeah. I don't need to go there if my lipids fragmented that I have on hand is mm-hmm. causal or associated and I'm getting a significant result from the data that I have. But in case not, then it is definitely advisable that we look into the ratios or different features. Mm. I then also take totally unsupervised learning approach from the machine learning. And there you can see, you just put your clinical data, these lipids together and do run this machine learning techniques and it will give you a selected feature which are responsible for the prediction of the diseases. So that's also a cool Mm -hmm. idea to how to pick up features, right? Yeah, and that also helps maybe to cope with the one of the criticisms that is often given to metabolomics that a lot of the features are correlated. So then you focus on one or a few that will hypothetically represent everything that's below the waterline of the iceberg. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, 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 yeah. We're mentioning now a few times MGWAS, so the combination of metabolomics with GWAS that we already discussed last year with Karsten Sure in, in an episode where we introduced the concept. But for your own work, what is the benefit of adding metabolomics to GWAS and combining those two? How do they benefit from each other? I checked your podcast and the people there are like my godfathers. (laughs) Karsten, for instance, he uh, published Metabolite Association, MGWAS, we call it, right? And then that's what even I use it. And basically... Mendelian randomization is a method that we use, okay, mm-hmm. to, to the causality. So it estimates the causality. So it's mm-hmm. equation-based method, so to say. But why we use it is one funny aspect to it is that it's comparable to a randomized control trial. So which is in a randomized control trial, you select subjects randomly. Half of them gets medication, half not. Bearing in mind their age, sex is same. And then you see the effect of medication, you know, and yeah. you compare these two. Mm-hmm. So the same similar thing is happening mm-hmm. um, in genetics. The SNPs are randomly allocated, right? The SNPs yeah. between two were, might not be the same, but yet causing the same thing. So genetics is what we regard as a random event. And the SNPs effect alleles and common alleles, these are the two factors where we can compare Again, it comes with a set of rules. Just like a randomized control trial where you make sure your population is falling under the same age and they are healthy. Similarly here, we make sure that these alleles are coming from uh, our exposure of interest like diabetic and and obesity. A lot of data is available for these two diseases. And what we do, then we go and screen for 
BMI, specific genetics markers or drivers, and type 2 diabetics uh, specific. So when I say these two things, I'm running this estimation independently because when you run one causality, you are doing it in one way. You want to see the change in metabolite causing change in diabetes or obesity. But this is like two times you are running this method to 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 draw your inference. Mm -hmm. Basically, it is like association is just a line that these two are connected. Yes. Causality is bringing arrow to your line saying yes. that change in this is happening in this direction. Yes. You've and explained nicely how you reach that level of getting closer to causality. Because often what statisticians tell us is that association is not causation. And yes, so that's like the traditional way of saying associations are boring. But, but now with this, we can really get access to to the causal link and the direction of that arrow. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And these are well-established methods. There are people mm -hmm. from Oxford University, from Broad Institute, working extensively on getting these tools ready. And what we are doing is that uh, we are using it in mm -hmm. contest of, of over scientific questions. And this is Mendelian randomization. What's the difference with uh, the Sobel mediation test that you also used in the paper? Because uh, in Sobel, you don't uh, use genetic information. It's mm -hmm. simple uh, that you, one is the independent variable, another one is dependent variable, and mediator is in the middle, mm -hmm. which could be what you want to test, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas here, it's completely different approach. Here, you are looking into a driver, a driver that connects you, a driver that connects me, but does not connect something else like our age and all that. And if you move this driver, will you push me or not? So this is like a test between you and me, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and this is completely different mathematics algorithms compared yeah. to me. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying this because <laughs> these are often, especially Mandarin randomization, like these are often terms that we we hear now and that we see in publications, and we know what the the result it means. But it's always nice to get a bit different perspectives on how it works. Yeah. If you're not an expert, you can grasp a bit better how you get to that conclusion. Thank you for that. <laughs> you also went to uh, another extra step afterwards where you did pathway analysis that you combined with other experiments. So can you tell us? What was that next step that you took and also where you get that data from that you worked with, with the with the extra experiments in mice? Right. So this is even more challenging because often in data analysis, you have your analysis, you, you can easily get lost in the data. But, mm -hmm. but to find the story, the conclusion, you know, is, is for me is a biological sense of the data. So mm -hmm. information is extracted. That's the first step. Now, the second step is like, biologically what this finding is telling me yeah and there i have some examples published where i'm the lead author of the paper and there i investigate i do data mining i go into mouse models you know there is a mouse consortium which is uh, for which the same metabolites are measured for obese non-obese mouse and seed information so i go and explore and this is a little bit tedious yeah you need to spend mm -hmm. time and there is no easy solution because you are in a human world, mm -hmm. but you are pushing yourself to go and search in different. Uh, and that's where I, what I have done, I tell my students, I, I bring my group together saying that, hey, look, these are our scientific questions. 
everybody gets to uh, get engaged in finding solutions. And it's so wonderful that somebody is coming with the gene enrichment analysis. Somebody is coming with the mouse models. And somebody is asking some lab in the U.S. saying that, hey, you have high-fat diet, low-fat diet, mouse data. How can I get access? They will say, get registered, get access to the data. And then they can, you know, that's so, great. So, yeah, this is time-consuming. I agree. It's yeah. less time consuming when you do it together, though. It's very interesting exactly. to also put the whole group together to find an original solution to a specific problem. Yeah, and then it becomes the nature of your group, right? Now yeah. my group knows that what we want and how we how we tell our story. And Alice, I should give you a heads up on this yeah. that you talk talk a lot about like storytelling in science, yes. and this encourages us and even encourage me in my group to mm-hmm. focus on. In the end of the day, your research boils down to the hand page manuscript. Yeah. And that has to be the story, right? Yeah, there should be a story. But I really liked in this paper and probably in many of your papers as well, like you what what would be the typical thing would be you have these associations. Uh now here is the story of what that could mean from the literature. Then after that you go, no, I'm gonna look for causality, I'm gonna do the Mendelian randomization and then I'm not gonna stop there. I'm gonna do these other experiments that personally I would have never thought of with the mouse models. And it's a really great idea. Of course, a mouse is not a human, so you have all the the questions of the translation between the species, but that's always the case. But that still gives you very interesting insights into what could be happening and supporting the idea that these changes are really relevant. So it's a great way to go. And, and I always say also, you can you can go in many directions. The point is that when you write that manuscript, you justify why you went there and you draw the conclusions that can be drawn also without over selling whatever finding and the combined work of different people together is also a way to enrich the solutions that you find at the end. I think it's a really great strategy because it's difficult to get to that level of complexity in the, in the positive sense, like that level of creativity in the analysis. It's hard to do that by yourself. And as soon as you put people together, you start going in different directions and then it, it builds on top of each other. So I think it's really a great approach you take. Thank you. <laughs> I think we've, we've discussed most of the, the main parts of the paper. I would ask you now overall, what do you think was the most challenging aspect for this type of study in general? So this is what I learned in this epidemiology world. Here, things starts with analysis plan. And this analysis plan is when I told you that if you want to have a data, you will need to give a scientific proposal. You know, when I'm writing a grant, I'm writing a plan that, you know, which methods I want to do. And this plan is really important and, and creating such plans. You know, the biologists are busy doing study design. Okay. Mm-hmm. But now it's our responsibility of a bioinformatician, biostatistician to, to develop these plans, which is in timely manner executable. You know, a lot depends on your students, your group, your team. You need to first nourish them so that they grow and grow in the direction where you want to, right? I have been extremely lucky that I had a brilliant team. Um, Also, my own experience being in Helmholtz that has given me that I was involved in this planning procedures, which is something which is really essential. And I would put my students, that those who are in the second year of PhD, I will take them to these meetings to start learning how to plan your strategies. And then it saves a lot of time, right? Then you're not scratching your head that, oh, where I want to go, where Mm -hmm. 
need to have a rough roadmap and then start working on it. So the most challenging part of the work is what we would say is before the work, but it's actually part of it. It's really the, exactly. the first step, the exactly. preparation that is going to determine if you can do this study at all. And also, I think it's also great. It's also something you discuss in the book. It's like that first step is also in the book that as you plan this, you also save yourself a lot of time down the line. Because Absolutely. let's say if we had access to the data just like this and you could just take data, you could also sit down at your computer and spend six months just looking at data with no purpose and that also wouldn't uh, serve you in the end. So I think there's really a, I think I think they do this to to ensure that the data is used in a good way and for useful things and in a respectful way of the data as well. Do you deviate a lot then from the yes. plan or? I yeah. was going to tell yeah. you this. You need to also to be open-minded. Yeah. You cannot do science. You can't predict everything that's going to no. happen. For instance, mm -hmm. we were working on proteomics data. Mm -hmm. So we did everything what we planned, right? Okay, we will do association, we will do MR, this, that, just that. BMI-related polygenic risk score published. Now that's where a good, that's a sign of good leader who is mm -hmm. self-aware of what is happening in market. Mm -hmm. That brings the information, tell that, hey, look, Read this paper. Mm -hmm. Can we do this? Yes, we can do this. In Cora, we have genetic data. We have those polygenic risk scores available. With great leaders like what you, whom you have already interviewed, all of them are amazing. You know, when you collaborate with them, you they help you to grow beyond your own comfortable analysis plan. Yeah. Then comes the yeah. challenge. Take that mm -hmm. challenge. Do it. First, you don't like it. It's unusual. It's uncomfortable. Yes. So it's, that's exactly you how you can grow. Yeah. Exactly. And that was the paper which I was going to submit in maximum five impact factor. And now we ended up in national communication. And bang, you learn how to bring impact in yeah. our science, you know, by mm -hmm. being open minded. That's a great example. Thanks. Well, yeah. <laughs> and in the end, so is that planning what takes the most time? Because that's also a question I usually ask, like for a paper like this one that we discussed, what took the most time from what you remember? from the conception of the study to getting the paper ready? Starting quite early is important because uh, when you work with this type of data, even if you name it Quora, you know, you need to give this agreement. So you need to start early. Yeah. That's my key thing. You need to start early. So something which I've already started doing, planning, irrespective of how much staff I have, because I want that for my own team. I want it for epidemiology team. So getting approval you know that was the most challenging you don't get data just like that <laughs> yeah so, so there's a lot of data available but you have to earn access to it exactly exactly mm -hmm. and that is all the procedure where you convince committee not in a verbal way but in a written way and get access to all your tools that you need or all your data and then make your tools to work claim your work. Mm -hmm. that takes several months i guess even Absolutely. once the proposal is ready they don't review it so often, so exactly. Yeah. You can start working on something else in the meantime, and then come back to it later. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So start early, you know, starting early. And this is now like a, being a group leader. Now, now we know we sit and do project planning, like project. We write POVs, like project for future, POF we call it, projects for future. So this is now our responsibility. I would not blame a PhD student to go and search for a topic. That's the time waste. But that's also part of the mentoring or the direction that you give to the students also to show, not just to do it for them, but to show them how it's done and then they can yeah. learn at the same time. So it's part of the education as well. Absolutely. You also have to do something. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. Hands on is always there. I mean, okay. So I think we're ready to talk about the second paper. Um, we won't get into as much detail for this one, but there were really some interesting findings from this. That one is titled Discovery of Drug Omics Associations in Type 2 Diabetes with Generative Deep Learning Models. And do you want to explain to us what, what the paper is about and what is the originality of it and the, the very interesting insights that it brought? Yeah. So this is a paper coming from Direct Project. It's a consortium where uh, uh, which took stratified approach, not just case control. It was not population-based. It was well-planned that, okay, we will have a pre-diabetic group, diabetic group, and it's a like pan-European cohort. So what I have learned is that, especially drug information, to transform that data, like which patient took what drug, because that makes it very tedious that there are generics, there are different names, you know, one is using metformin, somebody could use another one, lipid-lowering medication. So bring that, dealing with this drug data, and harmonizing it for the for 700 subjects that goes into this study was really challenging and took a lot of time. Meanwhile, we were band formatization uh, preparing other omics from this study. So I was responsible for metabolomics, targeted and targeted. Others were like transcriptomics and microbiome and all that. Like that, we distributed work and there's someone who was working on drug. This data came quite in the end. But once we had it, a lot of us effort went into it. Once this was in a readable format, a group from Zorin Barracks uh, from DTU, uh, they are the pioneer of developing new cutting-edge bioinformatic methods. And they gave this deep learning-based framework, multi-omics and encoder. So this enabled us to integrate multi-omics with the drug mm -hmm. data. The findings are amazing. We use this as now small database that how our finding could be affected by drug. You know, what they observe in this, uh, so they use this method, which is beyond univariate analysis. It's complicated. It's a deep learning. When I say deep learning, so they take a neural network approach and uh, mm -hmm. make this framework ready. But the key finding from this uh, observation, from this analysis was that, that how other omics were seen under a drug influence. Mm -hmm. And uh, the amazing thing was that say, there are 700 patients, they were given lipid-lowering medication. Okay, mm -hmm. so you would think that the molecularly it should reflect similarity, but there was differences, yeah. which again brings us to the point that, okay, subjects are responding separately and there is a high demand of precession. And so mm -hmm. th that, and this puts a that stepping stone that, look, we found this. We found discriminancy. We mm -hmm. found metformin effect on microbiome. It was also not novel and not known yet that how drug could affect your gut microbiome. This is mm -hmm. the next topic that is have coming in my group. This was the hardcore finding. Starting from developing right tools to process this data, and then this is the information. Mm -hmm. And this is what then I also used to, from the same study, I had metabolomics association with uh, diabetics and pre-diabetics. Of course, pre-diabetics was more lucrative. Tomping, uh, then if I found a biomarker, mm. and I did this analysis already last year, and this paper came this year. So what I did then, I used their information and see if my markers are not affected by drug, but some yes. of them there. Some of yeah. them there. So now you have yeah, signatures of the effects of drugs on multiple omics. Yeah. Yeah. That you can use and, and look for. 
Yeah, yeah. And then mm-hmm. I reported in my paper saying that, okay, out of so many, uh, let's say seven metabolites, mm-hmm. six of them are under drug. This one is not. Mm-hmm. Why not? And all that then. Mm-hmm. And how does it work when, because people with complex diseases like type 2 diabetes tend to have also cardiac problems and all sorts of things. So they, they will take m- multiple medications. So you have the signature of one medication, but what happens if you take heart medication, anti-diabetics, and so on? Yeah, so so here they have taken 20 medication mm-hmm. uh, into account at, at the moment. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if uh, we had that data or we have that data and the group is going in that direction of disease complexity, but they took 20 drugs. Mainly they were consisting of lipid-lowering medication and diabetic, and these two have a role in a inflammatory, like it reduces the inflammation or, you know, and association with omics. Is it different to work on a project like this with several dozens co-authors? It must be a very different approach when you're in a huge consortium like this one. This is so true. And there are conflicts and everything, but what I have found, no serious, and you, because everyone is king of their own kingdom, right? So the way to First of all, the way to put your art forward uh, comes from your own expertise, okay? And I have to, this is generally a trend that when you go up, then mm-hmm. the respect towards work increases and comes to your mind and you will not be viewed like we were when we were bachelors. <laughs> like when we were young, we will yeah. be hot-blooded, we will respond or... We will ah, yeah. Very mm-hmm. rough, right? Yes. But in this hierarchy, when you get experience, suddenly yeah. you have huge respect for everything who is doing. So this respect was really everyone was senior, and seniors had a junior staff. So yeah. you need patience, and you learn a lot from the differences. Yeah, that's so also a great way to get ideas for other analysis, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So I don't take it personally, anything, if there is a conflict or anything. I mean, the only thing is that we all work towards one goal and we all want to grow and learn and have respect. And this is really a cold water. You're going in an ocean, basically, (laughs) from river fish is going to ocean. So when it works out, it really gives beautiful results because you have so many different angles to look at the disease or at a set of data sets that... You really see it's also like things that no one can do by themselves again. So at a different scale, but you need all these expertises together to get to that level of insights and analysis. Also, I would like to add that Mm. medical staff has different language of communication. So So this project gives me, envisions me that how people Mm -hmm. see things, you know, and uh, there are different ways of communication you can look into Mm. and learn from. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe this is a good time to ask you, is there any advice you would have for someone who wants to do a similar work to what you do or advice that you wish you had when you were starting off that would have helped you? I think science is passion driven. Mm-hmm. If you have passion, you become patient. You know, you, you learn patience. Yes. You are motivated. Mm-hmm. You know, only advice I would ke- give that, you know, the pa- patience because it's easy to lose, right? And uh, yeah. Keep it up and keep being broad-minded. I have learned this, you know. Yeah. Be and stay, stay with the people who keep that passion alive in you as well. Yeah, yeah. And it really matters. It. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. There are ways to uh, to do it. But yeah, this passion is one mm-hmm. which I would say that it's key to strong. Yeah, I agree. It's, yeah. it's very important. I think this takes us to my very last question. 
you know what it is. <laughs> what is your favorite metabolite and why? Oh, at the moment, it's slippery. No, it's the moment, <laughs> always at the moment. Yeah. Lysopieces. Lysopieces, uh huh. So, why lysophosphatidylcholines? I'm never sure how people actually pronounce it in English. Oh, it's not my first language, so I'm <laughs> always wondering is it I, is it E? But yeah. so, LPCs, what LPCs. about them? Yes. Yeah. So, lately, <laughs> it's coming up everywhere. Coming up in a pre-diabetic marker in my adolescence studies also, so which is telling me that it's not only pre-marker, pre-diabetic or pre-obesity related marker in adult, but also, let's say there is a study in India happening where I'm doing the data analysis and everything, and there I find again this thing. So, according to age-wise, also early in your life, you can also see this coming up as a marker for obesity or diabetes. Yes. Yeah, so. This is what I've, from Yuri Kadansky, he put me into this, this, this thinking that, you know, you don't need to be, go global, like see what is happening to then fill the gap. So, so I think this, this lysopec uh, has a potential to, yeah. to and does it different age range. And does it come from inflammation then? Because often lysopeces are released from the degradation of, of membrane lipids when we release the precursor for inflammatory molecules. Very good question. So there is a recently one paper from, I, if I'm not wrong, from Gabi's group where they, mm -hmm. they were checking the ratio of lysopeces 15 and 17 mm -hmm. and were checking in the, in the, in a, a group of subjects who were like, had physical activity uh, challenge. And there they found that lysopeces 15 would coming from microbiome, whereas lysopeces 17 is subtract. It, it formed itself. And as, until now, there is no, real known information of uh, its mm -hmm. biological evidence. So it's not that simple. No, no. Mm -hmm. The metabolites change themselves as yeah. well, right? So maybe we have then back our versions of so inflammation as a, a precursor for those complex diseases, including diabetes and the effect on the microbiome as well. So Absolutely. maybe they meet somewhere there at the level of those lipids. Perhaps I need to keep working on this. <laughs> yes. And figure out the story behind it. <laughs> exactly. This will keep you next 10 years engaged. <laughs> In case you were afraid you'd be bored. <laughs> Thank you very much. It was really a lovely discussion. Thank you very much for taking part in the podcast. It's only been my pleasure and motivation. So thank you, Alice. Keep doing it. <laughs> Thanks. Thank you for joining us in this discussion. I hope that this episode gave you new insights and ideas on how to plan, conduct, and communicate your own metabolomic projects, and that you're excited for the future clinical applications of metabolomics. If you'd like to continue this journey with us, make sure to register for the Metabolomist email list on the podcast webpage, themetabolomist.com. If you want to learn more about how data interpretation is done, check out my book on the story principle at biocrates.com slash the story principle. For regular news on metabolomics and data interpretation, you can follow me, Alice Limonciel, on LinkedIn, where I post on metabolites, analysis strategies, data processing tools, and more. And make sure to check out our other podcast episodes on the Metabolomist website. <laughs>